plans change a lot. And I think it, it's, it's so, uh, such, such, a, such a pattern of our life that we actually plan for change. We leave early to go places, maybe thinking that there might be construction. Yesterday we drove down to Delafield, Wisconsin, and the bridge was out. And so our route changed. My plans changed even when I was going into college. When I was in high school, I actually wanted to be a solar engineer. I wanted to work with solar panels because I thought it was the wave of the future. And I was going to go to Colorado to do it. And after investigating and seeing the price that it would cost to go to Colorado, my plans changed. I decided I'm going to go to my home state university, the University of Missouri. And at the University of Missouri, I went there to study electrical engineering. After a year and a half, I discovered electrical engineering is very difficult. And so I switched from electrical engineering to mechanical engineering, which is not too much easier, but at least it's more visual and I could see it and think about it. After a year and a half of mechanical engineering, I decided to change to interdisciplinary studies. And you may say, what is that? Exactly. Exactly. It was a degree that would get me out a semester earlier because I knew I wasn't going into engineering. And so I studied math, psych, and religious studies. And I graduated with a degree in that, which is interdisciplinary studies, which qualifies me only to work at McDonald's or go into ministry. And so I chose ministry. But plans change, you know, plans change. Today we're going to be looking at the plan of God. If you would open up to Genesis chapter 25. We're starting a new uh, series, you could say, a new, a new part in the book of Genesis. At Jacob's Well, we work right through the Bible, and so we're working through the book of Genesis. In the first five chapters of Genesis, it's a look at the life of Adam, generally. And then chapter 6 through 11 is the life of Noah. And then we spent a huge portion uh, looking at the life of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12 through 25. Bill preached last week, and we saw it was the death of Abraham. And now a new generation is starting. But the promise and the plan of God is continuing on. The new generation is Abraham's son Isaac and his sons Esau and Jacob. Now, God gave a promise to Abraham. Do you remember what that promise was? We kind of boil it down into three promises. They all start with the letter P. Do you remember? They were a, a, a property, right? God promised Abraham a promised land, the land of Canaan. He promised them a people that they would become a great nation. Uh, eventually, they'd become Israel. And he also promised them his presence, that God would be with him. And so he promises things, these things to Abraham and to his descendants. And the promise of God and the plan of God is threatened once again. And it's threatened by uh, the, the effects of the fall, which we'll look at. It's also, a, it's also threatened by uh, people's personal um, um, traditions. And it's, it's even attacked by our sinful nature. And those are the things we're going to look at today. But we see the plan of God, the promises of God are threatened by the things going on in this world. And so the question is, does God's plan change for us? Does God, is God's plan ever amended? Is it ever cut short for our life? Or is it sure? Is it something that we can depend on? 
And so let's look in Genesis chapter 25. We'll start in verse 19. What page number is that? I forgot to write it down in Red Bible. Page 19. All right, page 19 in the Red Bible. Genesis 25, page 19, verse 19. All right. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, an Aramean of Pedam Aran, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field with Jacob, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. God, as we open up your word, Lord, we know that it is breathed out by you, God, that it is useful to our hearts and to our lives for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, God. And so we pray that you would do that today, God. We come to church, we come to your word with distracted hearts, thinking about what we're going to do with the glorious day outside that you made. We come to your word with stubborn hearts, angry at family family members, bent on sin. And so, God, we pray for your grace to open our hearts to your message this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God's plan and promises to Abraham and his descendants are threatened once again. And they're threatened by a broken world. They're threatened by our cultural customs, and they're threatened by our sinful nature. And those are the things we're going to look at today. And in looking into these promises of God, what we see is the first obstacle, the first mountain, the first hurdle is the corrupted creation. 
Remember one of God's promises to Abraham, again, is that he would be numerous, that he would have great descendants, that he would have as many descendants as the stars in the sky, that he would have as many descendants as pebbles of sand on the beach. He was going to have lots and lots of kids, grandkids, descendants, and they would become a great nation. And we learn that this is to come through Isaac, his secondborn, not his oldest, Ishmael. But there is a major problem. The, the promise is threatened because Rebekah is barren. We look in verse 20, and it says, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. And so he's 40 years old, all right? And it goes on in the end of that verse, it says, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. As we read on the rest of this passage, we find out that they actually did not have children until they were 60 Till Isaac was 60 years old. And so for 20 years, Isaac is praying, Lord, would you open my wife's womb? Would you let us have children? And if you remember, this was the same problem that his own mother had. Sarah, her womb was closed. And yet God came and he miraculously gave her a child in her old age, past the age of bearing children. At the age of 90, she birthed Isaac. And so Isaac trusts God. And he says, God, would you please open the the womb of my wife? And we see that God's purpose triumphs over this corrupted creation. You see, a, a barren womb is one of the effects of the fall. There are many effects of the fall out there. And God triumphs over them all. And we have seen this. We have seen this evidence throughout the life of Abraham. Maybe you remember Abraham is called out of his homeland and he's brought into the land of Canaan. And when he gets there, there is this great famine. No, no cause. It's not caused by Abraham. He didn't do anything wrong, but there is this great famine. And there is a chance that they could be snuffed out, that they would starve and die. And yet the Lord provides for Abraham and for Sarah that they might live. Later, as we had mentioned, they go to God and say, God, my wife is still barren. And Abraham actually runs off into an adulterous relationship to create a child at Sarah's, uh, at Sarah's blessing. And God says, no, it's not going to be that child Ishmael. It's going to come through the promised child, the child Isaac, that I will give to you when I open Sarah's womb. And so at the age of 90, God again overcomes this corrupted creation and gives a child to fulfill his promise. There is a corrupted creation all around us. The effects of the fall are everywhere. I remember when I was in college, one of my best friends was a guy named Jason Kettinger. And Jason was born with a degenerative disease in which he continually shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Uh, he could do little more than talk and navigate his wheelchair with his with the nub of his hand and get around. And yet Jason was one of the most joyous people I knew because he knew that the corrupted creation could not conquer the plan of God. He knew that even though the effects of the fall are all around us, that the promises and the plan of God is certain. And so the question for you is how is the fall affecting you? Where is corrupted creation around you? Maybe you have a disease that is affecting your life. 
Maybe you are, are dealing with the, the fact that you're getting older. I know I do, and I find out I just can't do the things I did before. And you're sitting there going, are God's promises still true? Is his plan still true? Can he still use me? Am I still valuable? Am I still worthy? And we see here that the resounding answer is yes. And this is so reassuring. As we see things come into the world like typhoons and earthquakes and hurricanes, natural disasters, God says, yes, these things are horrible. They are sad. They are grievous. But my plan will triumph over these. And so we see that God's plan triumphs over a corrupted creation. It also triumphs over people's patterns, cultural customs. In the time there was this cultural custom called primogeniture. Primogeniture, excuse me. And it's the right of inheritance belonging exclusively to the eldest son. And so what it would mean is that the eldest son would have special privileges. In life, he would be, uh, all his younger brothers and sisters would be subservient to him. He would kind of run the house when dad was away. When his parents passed on, he would either receive the full inheritance or he would receive a double portion of the inheritance. The family name was passed on to him. He was to carry forth the family business, and it was to be given to the firstborn. But God doesn't follow this pattern. God breaks out of their cultural customs, not because they were wrong, but because God had a plan and he was going to do it his way. We see this in Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And so the blessing that is coming belongs to the younger child that is to come from Sarah, the child Isaac. And you see Abraham responding with this primogeniture in his mind. He says this in verse 18. Abraham said to God, O that Ishmael, the oldest son, might live before you. Kind of like Abraham is saying, uh, God, can't we just follow the plan? Can't we just do it the way we do it? It would be less awkward, less weird. It, it would flow better. And God says, no, I have a purpose that is above the cultural customs. Certainly God works within the cultural customs, but he also works on his own timetable and his own ways. In the passage that we're looking at today, The Lord said to Sarah in verse 23, Two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the older. The older shall serve the younger. This was in complete contrast to the cultural customs. God's plan, his promise, is not bound by our customs. It's not bound by our patterns. You know, I think it's always fascinating to see how culturally arrogant we are as a people. That we have figured out church and churches to be done our way. Even within America, I remember when I was uh, leading a mission trip to a church that was an inner city church. It was actually a church in our denomination, a PCA church that was faithful to teach the word of God, faithful to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they did church very differently. We actually stole some things from them, like our, our fellowship break where we take kids and we keep them in during 
the music part of the service. But they did things very, very differently. And I remember one of the kids that was there said, I don't know if I can even take communion at this church because it's so weird. See, we have these cultural customs that says church has to be done our way. A relationship with God has to be done this way. God has to work in the way that we are comfortable with. You know, we even have these cultural customs when it comes to music on a Sunday morning. It's so funny, the discussions I have with people, they will go to a church where it's very traditional, and they'll have this complaint. They'll say, that church is just dead. Nobody loves Jesus. There's no emotion. And then I'll have people come from a traditional background and come to Jacob's well and say, this is just weird. It's all, you know, like emotional and goofy and floppy. It's just strange. You know, there's, there's no reverence in it. There's no meat. What's going on? Because we say our way is the best way. And God says, listen, I am glad that you like a church like this or a church like that. But I work above and through every type of custom there is. Every type of preference there is. And so we see God working in this way. And so God overcomes our cultural customs. We also see finally that God's plan triumphs over our sinful selves. And this is the best news of all. Verse 23, God tells Rebekah that the twins will become two nations, that the younger one, Jacob, will be blessed, that the older will actually serve him, but that God's blessing would come through Jacob, that through Jacob would come the nation that was promised, the nation Israel. Jacob would actually become named Israel, and then he would father the 12 tribes, which would make the nation of Israel. We also see that through the line of Isaac comes the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so the question is, why did God choose Jacob? Why did he choose Jacob? Why didn't he choose Esau? What was it about Jacob that God chose him? Was it that Jacob was such a good guy? That Jacob had such great faith? Well, we look at the description of Jacob in this passage, and it is not flattering at all. Nor is it for Esau, to be quite honest. We look in verse 22, and we see that the children waged war even in the mother's womb. And then that continued on to birth. Verse 26, we read, Afterwards, his brother Jacob came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Do you know what the name Jacob means? Name Jacob means heel grabber, okay? And so they named him Heel Grabber. Man, that is punishment, isn't it? (laughs) Not only was his name Heel Grabber, but it had a connotation. Metaphorically, it meant deceiver. I mean, I've heard some bad names in my time, right? I've heard of kids named Blanket, Apple. Uh, I've heard of one kid named ABCD, spelled ABCD because the mom couldn't figure out a name. I've heard of kids that have names like Baraboo and things like that. But Jacob, deceiver, I mean, this isn't setting this kid up for success. I'm not sure who would want to do business with this kid. But unfortunately, the parents were right. Jacob was a deceiver. We read later on in this story that Esau goes out to hunt. So he's a Wisconsin guy, right? He goes out to hunt and he shoots nothing. Definitely a Wisconsin guy. He goes out, he shoots nothing, he comes back, and he's absolutely famished. He is so extremely hungry, and he comes to his beloved brother, Jacob. And we pick up the story in verse 30. It says, Esau said to Jacob, 
Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which is similar to the word red. Jacob said, Beloved brother, I would love to feed you this stew and rejuvenate you and give you energy to go back and hunt some more. No. What's he say? Verse 31. Sell me your birthright now. Right? It's like he's waiting for this day to come. He's been manipulating. He's been waiting to get the birthright from his older brother Esau. It goes on. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. You know, I asked you if God chose Jacob because of his goodness. But when we look at this story, we see Jacob is this conniving, opportunistic guy that exploits the hunger of his brother to steal the birthright. And so it certainly couldn't be because Jacob was a good guy because he wasn't. Jacob was like me. Jacob was selfish. Jacob was looking out for himself. You know, it reminds me of that commercial. I don't know if you've seen it on TV where um, the father walks out on the front porch. I hope I say it right. He walks out on the front porch and his kid has this huge sucker. You know that one? He has this huge sucker and he's licking the sucker and he's so happy. And the dad comes out to him and he looks at his son and he says, son, where's your new bike at? And the son looks at the sucker and he has this uh-oh face. The son had sold his bike for a sucker, okay? Someone had conned him. This is what Jacob had done. And yet God had chosen to make his purposes go through the line of Jacob. And the question is, why? Well, we know that Scripture interprets Scripture, that Scripture informs us of the purposes of God. And we see this story picked up in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 9. And it tells us why God chose Jacob. Why God chose to bless Jacob. Romans 9, verse 10 tells us, it says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. And so it wasn't because Jacob was good. It wasn't because Jacob was bad. But in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, She was told the older will serve the younger. It was not because of Jacob's goodness. It was because of the purposes of God that he chose to bless and love Jacob. It goes on in verse 16. It says, so then it depends not on a human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The choosing of Jacob had nothing to do with Jacob's goodness. It had everything to do with God's purpose. The choosing of Jacob had nothing to do with his moral character, which is very good news for Jacob. But it had everything to do with the merciful plan of God. Now, as we read this story and we step back, it is a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? That God would choose Jacob and not Esau. That God would choose to love Jacob and pour out his grace and blessing and mercy on Jacob and not Esau. It is hard to swallow. You think to yourself, why did God not love Esau in that way? I'm reminded of a story that I read. One day a minister said in his office of his church, and he said, if anyone has any spiritual questions, any spiritual difficulties, come into my office hours and you can ask those questions. 
And so this guy comes in and he says, I'm really struggling with Romans chapter 9. He says, I'm really struggling with the passage that we just read that God said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And the minister looks at him and says, you're right. I've had trouble with that passage too. That is a, that is a hard passage to believe. Minister said, so tell me, what, what is it about that passage that you struggle with so much? And he goes, how could God hate Esau? It just doesn't seem fair. And the minister looked at him and he responded. He said, oh, I struggle with the other part of the verse. How in the world could God possibly love Jacob? He was conniving. He was deceiving. He exploited his brother. How could God possibly love him? You see, none of us deserve God's love. Jacob didn't deserve it. Esau didn't deserve it. The only reason we receive the love of God is by the mercy of God and the plan of God through Jesus Christ. I love the illustration Bill Acker used last week that salvation is like when Jesus comes through and he breaks down the gates of hell and he takes out his children and saves them to himself. Our sin is the ultimate barrier to God's plan, to God's plan of salvation for us. Yet while we were still sinners running away from God, while we were rebelling, being selfish, God came to save us. He chose to take on our adulterous hearts, to take on our selfishness, to take on our destruction, and to take on the hell we deserve by sending his son Jesus to the cross to die on our behalf. This was the plan of God to save us that he might show mercy to us. Now, this is a hard thing to wrap your head around, but it is also a great comfort, isn't it? Isn't it a great comfort to know that your salvation is not contingent on you? It's not based on your performance. It's not based on how good you are or are not. It's not based on how much faith you can muster up. But it is completely contingent on the purposes of God's mercy towards you in Christ Jesus. This is such good news. Because we can rest in our salvation. Knowing that God is the author and perfecter of our faith. And we can grow in Christ-likeness and grow in our relationship with him. Let me end with this illustration. A couple, I think it was last week, my wife and I watched this movie called The Kite Runner. How many of you have seen the movie, The Kite Runner? Okay, some of you will have seen it. In this movie, there is a man named Amir, and he's raised in Kabul, Afghanistan. And he's raised in a fairly affluent family, and he has this servant kid who's his best friend, and his name's Hassan. Well, they end up moving out for a lot of reasons, and, uh, and, and um, Amir ends up having to flee the country with his dad because the Russians come in and then the Taliban come in. And so they barely escape with their life. They move to America, create this new life. He, he becomes a writer. He writes books and he gets married. And all, one day he gets a phone call and it's a man from the Middle East. And so he, he goes back to visit this man. And the man tells him that his servant friend, Hassan was actually his brother and that his brother was was uh, grew up and he married and he had a son, but he died. Hassan did. And that the child was now in an orphanage in a war torn country. And the man says, you have to go rescue that child. 
And so he put a plan together to go in and rescue this child from the orphanage. He put on this fake beard. He found a driver. They drove across the border. And they went to this orphanage to get this child who is actually his nephew. But there is a major problem. The child is no longer at the orphanage. He'd been uh, taken away by the perverted authorities to be used by them. But he's undeterred in his plan. He decides, I'm going to go in to their compound. I'm going to go and I'm going to rescue this child. I'm going to save this child, take him home with me and raise him as my own. That is my plan. And he went undeterred and he got the tar beaten out of him. But he rescued the child, took him home and raised him as his own. You know, we looked at the plan of God for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we saw that it couldn't be thwarted by a corrupted creation. It couldn't be thwarted by people's patterns. It couldn't even be corrupted by their sinful selves. But let me ask you this. What is God's plan for you? What is God's plan for you? Can it be thwarted? Can it be terminated? Romans 8 actually tells us God's plan for you. And it's accompanied with a promise, just like it was for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's the promise. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so God has a purpose, and you are a part of God's grand purpose. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is a great promise to us. That in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the speed bumps, in the midst of corrupted creation and our sinful selves, that God makes this promise that he will use all of that. Not that it's good, but that he will use it for good to conform you into the image of Jesus. That you can go with Jesus to heaven to be his brother for all eternity. Because he is the older brother, the firstborn. This is a glorious promise today that although God's plan for our life is tested by sin, it's tested by destruction, his plan and promise triumph overall. Let's pray. God, we praise you that your plan is not subject to the things of the world like our plans are, God. Lord, we get off course many times in our plans because unforeseen things come up. Lord, we know nothing is unforeseen to you, God. And you have this great plan of redemption from the very beginning, Lord, to save us, to bring us out of slavery, to bring us out of orphanage, and to be your children, God. We praise you that you chose to show mercy on us, God. Lord, I pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would know that their being here this morning is no accident, God that you have brought them here to hear this message, to trust in you, God. And we pray that they would do that this morning. In Christ's name, amen.